The Dad Ass Podcast. Subpar, mediocre at best. Podcast, just trying to figure out this whole parenting and adulting thing. One drink and one conversation at a time. Hey, hey, and welcome to the Dad Ass Podcast, the completely unscripted, unconventional podcast just about trying to figure out this whole parenting and adulting thing. Me, I'm Matt, who's only hiked probably. 25 miles of the Appalachian Trail. And with me is a guy that kind of looks like he just got off the trail. And that is Sean, a.k.a. Dude, the resident family counselor, sir. You know what? Don't be jealous of the beard. <laughs> it's not my fault that I can grow one and you can't. Also, I'd like to point out that real men have beards. And I can say that because two of the three people on this call actually do have beards. And you're not one of them. I am the odd man out on this one. Yeah. Also, I think you maybe have hiked 25 miles on any trail in the past, like, I don't know how many years after you've had your kid. Yeah. And I don't want to make you feel bad about this, but the guy that we're about to talk to literally did 2000 miles, not with one kid, not with two kids, but I believe with six children and his wife. So I, you know... My goal was literally to make you feel as inferior of a hiker yeah. and husband and father as possible within this intro. And I feel like yeah. I've, have I done it? I'm I'm actually like, my palms are sweaty. And then he's just sitting here on the other screen with the cigar, the, the glowing beard in the light. Like I am, I'm, I'm very excited and intimidated all at once because this is what your life you. could have been, but it's not because you're not him. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. We we our esteemed guest on this episode is the one and only uh, Ben Crawford. He and his family of six kids and his wife are the the what biggest family to ever hike the entire Appalachian Trail. You have a vlog, a podcast, two books. You're also you do coaching and and business coaching as well too, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, I guess I do offer coaching. I stalked your website for the yeah. last three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not one of the things I lead with, but I, I do do it and I enjoy it. You you do it absolutely all and with six kids. So I, I have a two-year-old and right now I can either carry him on my, on my shoulders in a backpack, or we can get probably a half mile in. And then he's just like, carry me. So I have an abundance of questions for you. <clears throat> Because we always ask this question first, what's your favorite dad joke? Okay. Um, I think I only have one. I love it. And my dad told it to me. Um, okay. So a uh, dad tomato and of course is like kid tomato. We're walking and the kid tomato keeps on lagging behind. And the dad says, come on, hurry up. And the Kid tomato still is going slow. And finally, the dad says, Come on, hurry up. And then the kid tomato is still lagging behind. Finally, the dad tomato gets so upset. He stomps his foot down on the kid tomato and says, Catch up. <laughs> I love it. I was guessing that the punchline was going to involve ketchup, but I didn't think of like the the stomping on the yeah, side. Yeah, I wasn't prepared I, for him to literally stomp his child. <laughs> yeah, I, there's probably a I don't, there's probably a less violent way to deliver it, but no, I like it. Don't I mean, don't change a thing. That was how it was delivered to me. Uh, also, uh, I feel like years ago. 
I feel like there that has to have, have taken on a whole other meaning because I would assume um, from from what you know I've read and stuff, and I'm I'm super excited to actually sink into your book a little bit here. Um, plan to do that this week. Um, I don't read so good as Matt says, so uh, I'm gonna audible it um, to and from you know maybe while I'm at work or in the car. But anyway. Um, two was that is that right? You have a two year old that you hiked the trail with. We did, yes. Our two year old was our youngest, and our oldest was sixteen. So I imagine that you found you had to have found found yourself saying like, "Come on, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, catch up." A lot. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm I'm very interested in the in, in the details of of this. Uh, this did you share that endeavor. joke at any time? Did you ever share that joke while you were on the trail? You know, all my kids have heard it probably once. And I think that's like enough times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it probably ever came up on trail because I think I, you know, I used it uh, to its maximum capacity. <clears throat> I mean, I kind of, I'm glad I had it because the only, this is the only time I've ever been thankful that I had it. Cause you guys insisted on a dad joke, but yes, um, I love it. All right. And, so and we applaud you for that. Yeah. Um, okay. so, um, you know, we also like to hear what everyone's sort of, um, what vice they're enjoying, um, you know, as we record, um, me personally, um, I did not realize this, but it was my half birthday this, um, past week I came into work and, um, I have a summer birthday, uh, as you could tell by um, the time of year that we're recording. And I found a present on my door from a colleague um and her and her husband who her husband's a big bourbon drinker um bought me a bottle of bourbon so i cracked open a um where where did it go ah here it is whistle pig um old world rye um wine cask finish uh it's 12 years old and it is delightful um yeah i think it's 86 proof so um yeah, so that's what I'm drinking. Oftentimes, um, when Matt and I have gone hiking, I throw something in a flask. Last time, I think actually, the flask that we used last time from hiking is still has the same booze in it. And normally, I go like, honestly, like just cheap but good whiskey. Like it doesn't have to be fancy. But the last time Matt and I went hiking, I was having a particularly rough time in my life, and I was just like, screw it. I'm putting Blanton's in the bottle. So I have a flask with some Blanton's bourbon um, in there. But but tonight I'm, I'm having uh, some whistle pig. Matt, what are you having? Well, because our guest is from Kentucky, um, I found this bottle of Knob Creek 15-year that was left <gasps> at my house <laughs> when I Sean believe, was here last weekend. I so believe I, I know where that bottle came from there, Matthew. So. In honor of a guest from Kentucky, I figured I should go with Kentucky bourbon because I'm a firm believer when I go hiking, you have to have bourbon with you for wounds, fire starting, and warmth and survival. Yeah. And so that's my honor in um, paying homage to uh, a guest who hiked the trail and is from Kentucky. Hey, do me a favor. Pay just a little bit of honor to this guest with that bottle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we don't need to honor him too much with our pores here. All right. I'm just, I'm just saying that's not yours. So, so Sean, you said that you like cheap and good. The whiskey. Yeah. Have yeah. you had four roses? 
like Four Roses, I'm going to go cheaper than that. Well, I've heard that they're like, okay, but they're, they're budget, they're big bottle. Like okay. the, it's not the small batch stuff, but they're large. It looks like the, I don't know what it is, like a liter. Yeah. Is like the best whiskey on the cheap side. Is uh, what I've heard. Okay, so I'm gonna challenge you here, and you're actually prime. You're lucky because you're you're coming to us from Kentucky, um, as Matt said. Um, so hold on, I'll, I'll grab it here. But there is a Heaven Hill Green Label. Okay, it it's uh, it looks like some of the other Heaven Hills, um, but it's 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 green, and it, they only sell it in Kentucky. Um, and I oh. think you can pick up a bottle, uh, like a 750 bottle for like 12 or 13 bucks. I'm talking, this is cheap. It is seriously some of the best budget bourbon huh. ever. If you can, like, I think last time I was in Kentucky, I literally bought it at a gas station. Um, totally gets overlooked. Um, you know, what I had read at one point, I don't know if this is actually still true or not. This was several years ago. I bought, I seriously bought like two or three bottles. Um, and brought it back. Uh, so I haven't needed it in a while, but, um, cause I have a very extensive collection behind me. Oh. Um, I have All about, right, well, I don't even, I don't even drink. Oh, uh, really? So you win that challenge. Well, I can if, see if, if you feel like you want to, uh, try something or, you know, someone who does heaven Hill green label I'm telling you All right, good to know. Good, good, cheap stuff. Now you you don't have a drink because you just said you don't you don't drink, but you are enjoying a fine cigar. Yeah, well, it's not a fine cigar. It's my wife's leftover, super cheap, crappy cigar. <clears throat> it was like half smoked, and then I picked it up a week and a half later and started smoking it. But you but look so is, cool with it. It is a cigar, um, and it's I I don't want to say I don't drink at all, but I don't like drink bourbon and enjoy it. Like I'll yeah, drink it socially. Um, and if I would have known that it was that type of podcast, I would have shown up with a glass of something just for the looks. But um, you have a cigar, and that's that's yeah, pretty. That's honestly, pretty honestly, we couldn't have handled it if you would have showed up with a bottle or a, a, a glass of something and a cigar. It would have just mind blown. Like um, a, a bottle of Pappy Twenty Three Year that I'm just casually sipping. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, we I smoke a lot, um, not as much as I'd like, but I try, and. Uh, I, I don't smoke a cigar a day, but I, you know, pretty close to that. All right. Um, well, you said that that's a cheap one. I appreciate that it's a waste, not want, not situation there. Um, I want to know before we get dive into like the trail and all that sort of stuff. Um, two questions. One, a cigar you've never smoked, but always wanted to like to try or, and two, um, most enjoyable cigar you've ever had. And that could be maybe not an expensive one, but sometimes like, you know, the power of like where you're at or, you know, like whatever, there could be a good story attached to it. So, um, yeah, I want to know those, those, those things. The first is a cigar that I've always wanted, but never tried. <clears throat> it's really tough. Cause I'm one of those guys, I, I don't have like super expensive taste. And if I kind of see it, I, and I want it, I buy it. Um, but Okay, so I'm a fan of Drew Estate cigars. A lot of like cigar snobs will like look down their nose at these kinds of cigars because they're like flavored and a lot of more. And um, there's some new flavors that I haven't tried yet. So I'll just have to go okay. in general. Um, <clears throat> but like at the store, they're like nine bucks. And then like I get them online for two, three, or four bucks. So it's hard for me to justify yeah. like <clears throat> um, 
And then in terms of a favorite cigar, um, I don't know. I guess I'll have to go with, um, uh, you know, there, okay. There is a, a CAO Brazilian cigar that I smoked in Hawaii 10 years ago this month that I, I remember I smoked it and it was my first cigar that I smoked with my son. Um, I think he turned, he must've turned like nine that month and he, or that year. And he smoked, it was his first cigar we smoked it together in Hawaii. And I, I just remember that it was really fun. So that's all cool. right. That's a cool story. Now I'm sure you have tons of cool stories from the eight of you going from tents and, and cabins and miles and miles um, for months on the Appalachian trail. I have to know though, and I'm sure a lot of people who are listening, how, how did this trip come about for anyone that's not familiar with, with your story or haven't read your book? How, how did this, this happen and, and come to fruition? Yeah. So I grew up on the West coast and on the West coast, like hardly anyone has heard of the Appalachian trail. Like it's not that big of a deal. When, when we started doing a little bit more traveling on the East coast, you, like we talked to people and it's almost like on everyone's bucket list. It feels like in some way, shape or form. Um, so we were out on a trip when we were like in our, I guess we were fairly newly married. We were, I was 20 or 21 or something. <clears throat> and we were on a bike trip, biking across the country. And we stayed in this garage this one night, me and my wife. And, uh, we had a one-year-old at the time and there was all these hikers sleeping on these bales of hay. And we're like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're hiking this thing called the Appalachian trail. And we're like, what is that? And like, they, they has described this life where, I mean, we met these old ladies where they were like 55 and 60 and they were hiking with their backpacks, like from Georgia to Maine. And like my view of a grandma was like some decrepit person that sits there burning candles and like doing puzzles. And here are these like two grandmas were that were like, it's hard to explain. Cause they felt kind of like a little, there's like a hippie vibe going on, but also like a super badass yeah. vibe, you know? And I, I was just like, Oh my gosh, like you can do that. And, um, so I wanted to do it right away. And my wife was not a fan of, she had, we hadn't, we weren't like an outdoorsy couple at all even. And, um, but we did a, a number of backpacking trips over the years that gave us a taste for how powerful of an experience it was for our family. Like we would do this hike around Mount Rainier. It's like this 95 mile loop and it takes a week or two. Uh, and it was really hard. Like the first time we did it. <clears throat> and then like, I mean, we had money too. So we went on, like, we went to Disney world and Disneyland and we took the kids to the Bahamas to that one place. Like uh, what's it called where they have all those water slides Atlantis. And um, so we spent like all this money going to these like nice vacations. And then we did these like super kind of like, granola, like live in the dirt vacations. And I was always blown away by like, when we come back from the fancy expensive vacations, like people kind of came, it's not like we didn't have fun. Like, I don't want to like, you know, piss on that type of vacation, but everyone was like a little bit like cranky or tired or like, it didn't make us closer as a family. Like it, we had our moments, but the type of bonding that occurred when we did these like really hard, like kind of challenges together brought our family together in a way that I actually didn't really know was even possible. 
it's kind of like the phenomenon. If you, uh, you know, these people go off to war, right. And then they come back and they say like, what was it like? And they can't explain it. Like the only people that can explain it were the people that were in there with them together, you know, and they feel that kind of camaraderie. Um, that's kind of how it feels to a certain degree to go through some of these hard things. And I, we saw our family doing that, like coming back from these trips, just like different and, um, enough of those. And I think the, the idea resurrected and my daughter was going to turn, she was turning 17. So we knew like our, my oldest, it was like, it was our last opportunity to do it with our entire family. So that kind of lit a fire under our, uh, I'm allowed to say ass, right? You yeah. Know, that that yeah, one is yeah. okay. We, it lit a fire <laughs> under our bottoms and we, um, <laughs> and we, uh, we just started planning it. Uh, we knew it was kind of like do or die type of thing. That's, that's so cool. I, I know exactly uh, what you're saying. Cause there's, there's some like trips you come back from and you're like, even before it ends, you're like, okay, I'm ready to get back. But now I'm nervous. Cause now I'm getting all the scaries of work or life or anything like that. But like anytime we've gone somewhere where there's like physical activity and, and challenges of, of hiking a mountain or just being connected with nature, then all of a sudden there's this whole different level of like completeness as, as a group. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's weird too. Like, so we we're from Seattle and there was this kind of quintessential camping story that we always heard because it always rains in Seattle. So we heard from all these people that they would say like, Oh, I went camping with my kids and it rained the entire weekend and everything got soaked and it was a complete disaster. So we're never going camping again. That was like kind of the story. And I'm like, well, you're talking about it 10 years later. Like what, what are you looking for here? Like, I mean, what was oh, the alternative true. to watch yeah. season like one of 24 and like have a completely unmemorable weekend. So like, it's really weird. Like these miserable moments that we share and have a lot of times make for the best story. You know, people joke about that crap for yeah. decades. They're like, Oh, yeah. I remember when we were like, our sleep bags were soaking wet. We were miserable. And they laugh about it. And, while it's painful in the moment, you don't remember the pain. You remember the, you know, camaraderie. And so the question that we started asking is like, well, how does that play into how you plan trips? Like, why do we plan these rosy vacations that kind of end up being pretty unmemorable in a way? Yeah. Or can you like plan basically these disasters? <laughs> well, and, and there's a lot more that, that I think people should hear from how it came to, and then like the final days of preparation, especially um, in your documentary, you show kind of everything you were doing for the 30 days. And I want to come back to that, but it rained on your first day. Yeah, I was like freezing um, rain. Like, I just want to know. And, and then we'll, we'll rewind and come back to like your, your final days of preparation. Like on your first day, was there ever a time in your mind where you were just like, uh Oh, yeah. The entire day was, uh, Oh, um, yeah, that was really hard. Um, they have this saying on the trail that's like, never quit on a bad day. And that's like, you know, age old adventure planning wisdom. Cause you have bad days and our first day was bad. And I think we had enough discipline at that point to know basically not to quit on a bad day and to stick it out like another day. And that, you know, our entire trip ended up being five months and nine days. So it was like 161 days. 
And of that, I would say the first month and a half or two months were pretty miserable. We're talking like 20 degrees temperature in the teens where our water bottles are freezing, um, like hiking through waist deep snow, uh, like blizzards, freezing rain, stuff like that, that we were pretty much like not prepared for. Like when I heard, when I think of like Georgia, when I was going through the AT in the summer on that bike trip, I was talking about, I was like thinking, Oh, like lunches by streams, like putting our feet in the water and like Georgia has peach trees and stuff. This was like, not that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was pretty miserable, but I think we just, you know, you have to take, I guess there's a couple different perspectives that help us. Like one is it's not all going to be great. It's not Disney world or Disneyland. And, and of the 161 days, I'd say there was probably like 30 days of that. That was like pretty damn miserable, like period, like with very few shining moments in there. But like, also, if you look at home life at home with like microwaves and cable TV and Wi-Fi and all this, like in 161 days, I would say we have like 30 miserable days at home too. Like it's not, you know, it's weird when you choose misery or you choose a misery that's optional, but it's life is hard at home also. So it's like, I don't know, it was a different kind of misery for sure. But there's a simplicity about, um, like when you have the freezing rain, you like kind of know what your enemy is. You're like, we need to stay warm. We need to keep morale high. We're all kind of like looking at each other and be like, what the heck do we do? Like, this is miserable. This is ridiculous. At home, the type of misery we face is much more complex. It's like, you know, um, what fractured family, like dad usually has his stuff that he's dealing with at work. It's like spreadsheets and numbers. And then the mom, who knows what her issues are, but she's dealing with relationships and whatever I'm, I'm generalizing here, but kids have their drama at school or their difficulty with whatever. And we all kind of have like different problems. One of the things that was cool about the AT was we all kind of like faced the same problems at the same time. I have never thought about that way, but actually your story um, very much connects with me, but I haven't hiked the AT. Um, I have had cancer twice and beat it twice. Um, and the simplified um, nature of like the quote unquote enemy or like the bad, like I remember having like truly having like, you almost said my exact thoughts of like, there have been periods of time where like I didn't long for, for chemo or, you know, like any like terrible things that went with that. But like there was a simplistic nature too. Like I got, I got one goal. I'm going to wake up I'm, I'm, and I'm going to just literally like live today. Um, and you know, I've, I've never had that experience of outside of what I've, you know, I've experienced, um, with cancer and things like that, but I can totally identify with that very simplistic, like it was grueling, gruelingly difficult and terrible at times, but it was also simplistic and it, that there was comfort in that, even in as terrible as it was at times. Um, oh, totally. So, so although it's not the exact same thing, like I, I'm very much identifying with, um, with what you're sort of saying. Yeah. There comes a clarity with the suffering where all these things that used to matter, like just don't matter anymore. And for us, our family's job was to walk, you know, for 161 days, we averaged 13.5 miles a day, every single day. It was more than a half marathon a day. So our job is to stay warm, to walk 
to eat, to poop and to sleep. That's like all we did for five months. And it's, it's not hard, but it's also like, there's an incredible amount of like decision fatigue. I think we face with our, like, even like deciding what to watch on Netflix. It's like weird, but it's not easy. Like it's like energy and there's angst and there's confusion and there's frustration. And out there, we just didn't have that. Like we had this simplicity where like, it's hard, but at least we know what we need to do. It's so clear, like what our challenge was. And we were unified in facing it together. All right. So you walk on the first day. I've, I'm always curious to know, like, and I love camping and backpacking and all that sort of stuff, but there are even still times when I've gone backpacking and stuff where, um, I'm, you almost get a little like, like nervous, like, you know, I'm out in the middle of nowhere, like, um, that sort of thing. How long does it take for it to settle in where that, like, it just feels normal like you know what i mean like we're we're like that like because at some point yeah you were on like a trip or if you want to call it a vacation or you know you're on this this adventure together um and at first it's got to feel like an adventure and it's got to be exciting but then at some point it has to just feel like normal life i i don't know like do you remember there being a defining moment where all of a sudden it was just like yeah like this is just like what we do where like you almost caught yourself of like this is a totally like abnormal thing in terms of what modern day society which you know i really hate the term normal but like you know under normal circumstances you'd be like what is this but you're like oh yeah like this is just like you know what we do did you ever have that moment well i'll say like on day five we stayed at a hotel because it was like freezing rain and uh we freaked out when we found out there was like hot water and carpet and pillows like (laughs) i mean it was just like the most amazing thing and that's five days into it so somewhere in those four days we almost like adapted to not having those really basic things so it's amazing how quickly um we can adapt and like i said these things that i mean i use electricity but i'm not like excited about it or like right. hot water that on day five, we were like pumped. Like we could, we were just like ecstatic. Um, and I guess the one other thing I'll say, because your story or your question um, hinted on something else, which is like, you know, there, I think there's this like universal fear of the unknown. One of the things though, that we experienced on the trail, there's this phrase out on the trail called, it says the trail provides. And, um, it's weird. Like at the end of my book, there's, um, it's, there's like a thank you section and it lists some statistics and I'm not going to have time to look it up, but basically like during our 161 day trail, we had like probably 20 people that we didn't know offer us places to stay. Um, I think somewhere like 60 people bring us out meals or offer to pay for meals or deliver meals to us. These were all completely unexpected. I mean, there's one story of how we, um, I really wanted to go to downtown New York city. Cause you can actually see the skyline from the trail, but we just didn't have time. Uh, so we kind of skipped it, but then like the next day, some lady that was watching our videos delivered queen pizza from Queens, New York, that she said was the best pizza in the city. She brought it to the trail for us. Like wouldn't let us pay for a dime. 
you know, with like these whole food salads and chocolate milk and all these like gourmet cold brew coffee, you know, like stuff that like, I wouldn't even buy. That was just like, it was like the best food you could like get in that category. And time and time again, what we found was not only like when you leave home and you leave comfort behind, do you like kind of face your fears, but actually when you let go of whatever it is you're clinging onto that brings you comfort from the past, et cetera, like you open the door to like new things that are actually better than what you were experiencing previously. So yeah, it was like scary, but after a while, you just kind of like learn to trust that you learn that people want to take care of you. And when people hear about what we were doing, there was like all sorts of, like we heard about that. There was a thing called trail magic where I heard about it the first time I told you when we were staying in that garage and the ladies would tell these stories and they'd say like, yeah, you'll come across a stream and they will be like, a six pack of beer, like sitting in the cold water on a hot day. And I'll be like, you're like, no, like I said, I didn't even like, this is before I even drank at all. And I was like, that still sounded amazing. Right. Uh, but that was just like the tip of the iceberg of, um, the number of things that happened where we just felt completely blown away by generosity of strangers more than any other time in my life. Um, and we, and you're completely dependent upon it. Like, you know, these, these strangers would invite us to stay at their house and people would be like, well, with kids, like, aren't you worried about safety? I'm like, listen, if you have electricity and hot water, it's safe enough. Like, you know, you're not, you're not picky about, uh, stuff like back here. I'm like, if someone asked me to say it, like offers their place, I'm like, you know, I'm good. Thanks. I got my own bed, my own pillow, but there is this kind of like desperation out there that just breeded this immense, like gratitude and people lending themselves to want to help people out. So I don't know. I just kind of want to like, that was one of the hugest lessons we came across was yes, it's scary to leave the norm, like whatever it is, whether it's your literal home or your old way of doing things. But we were blown away by, I mean, the stories we have to tell about just generosity. It was probably the most impactful part of the entire trail. Actually. We, we had a guy on uh, from England who walked barefoot across the entire country to raise awareness and money for um, research for rare disease that his daughter had. And he was sharing um, similar stories where his story got out on the news or someone saw a video on social media. Next thing he knew, he had like a rugby team giving him like trainers came out to help his feet. Cause he, he did a barefoot walk across the country and, and similar stories. And, and I'm curious, cause we asked him towards the end, like the most, heartwarming, you know, what, what really just hit you the most in generosity? Is there one that stands out over all of the, uh, acts of kindness that, that stands out for you? Well, there was too many to count. Um, I I'll share a story from another trip. Actually, this is the trip that led when we were biking and one of the first times I ever experienced this. And, um, this was, like I said, uh, we were, I was 21. So this was 2001, maybe, pre-cell phone. So we're biking across the country. My wife and I are on welfare. So we like, we're getting free peanut butter from the government and we flew the peanut butter, uh, with us across the country to bike back with these jars of peanut butter. Cause this is what we're eating. So we're broke, you know, $10 a day was our budget for this trip for all three of us. And, um, it's mother's day. I remember because we were staying in this like abandoned lot. We pitched our tent. And then I go, to the neighbor's house to knock on the door to ask them if we could use their phone 
so I could call my mom to wish her happy mother's day. Um, because this is like pre cell phone and these people like found out they're like, where are you staying? They're like, Oh, there's snakes over there. Why don't we watch your kid? Well, you like, basically they moved us into their house for the night, gave us showers, gave us a bed, watched our kid, uh, made us a meal, like gave us a whole date night. And we had known these people for like five minutes. Like we were asking to borrow their phone. I was going to give them like five bucks for like the long distance, you know? Uh, and that type of thing, like it just happened again and again and again. But that, that story, I was like, Oh, if we would have had our own phone, that wouldn't have happened. If we would have, um, stayed home, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, like it's, it's just that weird phenomenon where people, they want to help, but no one wants to be the one that asks for help. Right. Like like how much do we each want our neighbor to knock on our door and be like, Hey, can I borrow a half cup of sugar? We'll be like, Oh, totally dude. Like I'll hook you up. Like that's, that's great. Like that's what neighbors are for. But then if we run out of sugar, we're like, I'm going to go to the grocery store and get it myself. Like I don't want to put someone out. Um, so anyways, like you got me ranting because I I'm very passionate about this topic of putting ourselves in situations where I love it. Keep going. We need no, to ask keep, keep going. But, and this was like, you know, if there's anything that it's weird, like, people think that the trail and like nature and all that, and it was cool. Like, I'm glad I exposed my kids to that, but actually this side of humanity, exposing my kids to this, this to me is like living like with people. This is a side of America or the world that most of us never see because, because we have Uber, Uber eats. And like I said, we would rather go to the grocery store instead of asking, we, we've created a life that's like, seems to be based on self-sufficiency and out on the trail, we lacked self-sufficiency. I mean, we were so like, like I said, someone could offer us a hot meal and we would literally walk 20 miles to get it. We're so like desperate feeling for nutrition. I mean, we lost, um, I think I lost something like 30 pounds in the first like three weeks. Um, so we're like literally like starving. You can't eat. There was meals where I would have like, um, like a Gatorade a Starbucks Frappuccino and a beer, like all at the same time, <laughs> like for the taste and the calories. But, uh, so when you're in that situation, like kindness to stranger from strangers is just like magnified and you really don't have much. You could say no, I guess, but you'd be a fucking badass to crap. Yeah. I'm supposed to say this for some, uh, but yeah. you, you, you'd, you'd be a badass to say no in that scenario. Like, uh, would you be a badass or a dumbass though? Let's just like, you know, we talk about that sometimes. Like, yeah, I mean like, oh, I'm going to do it on my own. But like to your point and like to get to your point of the story though, is like, you know, yeah, you could self-sufficiently do it. But part of the magic, it sounds like of, of, of having that experience is also understanding like the connectedness that we all sort of have. And by saying like, no, I packed everything myself or those sorts of things. I mean, it, it's a, not that that's not an admirable thing. I don't mean it that way. If anyone's doing that, like, cause for sure, like hiking Appalachian trail in any capacity is, is impressive. But like, you know, I like that, that what you really found inspiring out of it was also just like the human side, which is um, in all honesty, that was not an aspect I'd really ever thought of and as you were talking about like um you know realizing how dependent you are on on other people and other people's kindness and those sorts of things um i would have never equated that with hiking the appalachian trail only because i 
as someone who's never done it um, and only ever done like, you know, weekend back like hikes, you know, I might stay two, maybe two nights, three days sort of thing. I think the longest I've done is three days, four nights. Um, I always go into it being like, I'm going to be like self-sufficient. Right. Um, but you can only do that for so long. Right. Like at some point, like what you're saying, you're going to need other people. Um, there was a movie, uh, Zach Galifianakis made it. Uh, this was, I couldn't even tell you what, what it was, what the name of it was, but he like, um, the, the only premise I really remember was that he, it was either him or someone that he knew basically like couch surfed across the United States for an extended period of time. And they talked about that exact thing of like these random kind things and the people that, and that's just a side that like people, that's the thing I'm jealous that I've not experienced in my life yet. I'm very hopeful that I will get to experience that. But like that really is amazing to have that opportunity to be able to see that and experience that and, and see other people's kindness and those it's, sorts of things. It's priceless. It's invaluable. I mean, because, and I, I don't think I realized how valuable it was because I mean, I'm fairly open-minded even to go on adventure like this, but I was still raised like watching the news where basically if you watch the news, you're just afraid of people. Uh, the first thing you're taught is not to talk to strangers. You're basically taught like the world's going to take advantage of you. And someone's out there like waiting to kill you or snatch your kid or something. Yeah. And our experience on the trail proved that that's not true. Not that those people aren't out there, but that that's not the narrative we should be teaching our kids. We should be teaching our kids that most people want to help you. If you say no to all strangers, you're going to say no to hell of a lot of good conversations. Mm -hmm. We spent the night with a Amish family or like a Mennonite. They had like, they had like an encyclopedia, you know, they called it the Mennonite internet. <laughs> and like, <laughs> I mean, like when, when do you get to do that? We stayed the night with a cult. We stayed the night in an abandoned church. We stayed the night in a CrossFit gym. I mean, like talk about giving my kids like an education. Like I want them to meet these types of people. Like, and we met them. So it was, it was cool. Yeah. Now, I, I'm dying to know, right? Being being married, and being a dad, what what is like for you as 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 husband and as dad were like big takeaways. You, you there had to be some gems that just made you look like okay, that that's a hell of a lesson for me to know, and that makes me a better blank. I'm just curious. Are there one or two that really just kind of like? tugged at your heartstrings a little bit or really just kind of, you know, took that, that figurative, like four by four across the face. You're like, Oh yeah, I should be doing that as a dad or as a partner or as a friend. Yeah. I would say the biggest lessons revolved around letting go of my expectations. I mean, there's this whole like thing, you know, that I've experienced as a parent, which is like, there's a lot of pressure to, to make your kids successful, you know, whether it's at school or whether it's taking their first steps by age one or whatever these arbitrary things are that we like, you know, the things that you basically brag about to other parents. And, you know, so we're in the, on this hike and it's like, how badass would it be to be able to say, Oh, I'm the dad that led the largest family to hike the Appalachian trail. I mean, that's pretty cool. But then when your kid's crying and it's raining 
and you like, they don't want to hike anymore. It's like, okay, well, that'd be badass to get done, but then you're going to be a piece of crap dad that is like ruining your relationship with your kid to get that done. Like, is that worth it? Like, it's like, of course, sitting here talking to you, it's not worth it. It doesn't sound worth it. But when you're, when you've invested four months into it yeah, and you're like, this one mile could be the difference of us even being able to finish or not finish. Should I spare, like, do I actually want to listen to my kids' feelings right now? Or should I just like push them or manipulate them or pressure them? You know, we have all these tips and tricks as parents to like, you know, when your kid's crying at the grocery store and they're like causing a scene, you like can pinch them or grab them or, you know, you're like, shut up. Like, you know, just cause it's like so damn stressful for me. I'm not proud of these things. I'm just saying every parent has these little tricks of these little things that you do to like get your kid to do what you want basically. And all those things in my experience, they work great in the short run, but they work terrible in the long run. Like, and that was the thing that we constantly had to ask is like, what is success here? Like is success finishing the trail is success like pushing our kids to do things, but then they ignore their bodies and ignore their own inner voice. And then they hate us and themselves afterwards, or is it more like listening and being able to enjoy our kids and when they're having a hard time, just to be able to sit there and have a hard time with them. And that was what I really thought about and experienced for five months is like, okay, I had to redefine success because if I finish this trail, but my kids hate me, you know, as adults, I'm like, that's not a parenting success for me. And there were some pretty key moments where that came into like, like in New York, we're about halfway. And my 13 year old son was having a hard time and he didn't want to do it anymore. And, um, he was complaining all the time. And there's a train that goes from New York back to Cincinnati. So we offered him, you know, uh, and we thought about it. And we finally, we said like, you know, like your autonomy is more important to me than our title of, of what people think about us like doing this. And by this time we were like vlogging it. So a lot of people, like 5,000 people are watching our videos every day. And like, you know, there's this, like, you almost feel like you have to make the, it's kind of like, you know, with podcasting, you, you know, your audience is out there. So you have to record every week and they're like waiting for it. And they, you know, if you provide a crappy episode, like, you know, you're letting people down and, it's kind of like this larger than life thing. And, um, but we gave him the choice and we said, Hey, like you can go home to video games and air conditioning and, or you can hike in this dusty ass trail with us for another two or three months. And, uh, and it was a hard decision to even give him that decision. You know, a lot of the times, like we don't give our kids the choice if they go to school or not, or if they wear clothes outside, like we're like, no, you got to do this. Otherwise I'm going to look like an idiot. Um, but we gave him the choice and, and he chose to stay. And after then though, because he owned the decision and he no longer felt like he was doing it to make us happy, we kind of said, well, if you stay, we can't have you complain all the time. Cause that's a lot of work for us. Um, and he stayed and he didn't complain anymore. Cause it was his decision at that point. He felt like he owned it. It wasn't like him trying to make us happy, but that was like, that could have been like a bluff too. Like on our part, like, you know, like, oh, we're going to like fake threaten, you know, like send you home if you don't shut up. But it wasn't, it wasn't a bluff. You really would have sent him home if you said, I want to go. Yeah. I mean, it would have been hard, but that was like, you know, that the kid's choice is like, it was part of the basis for our entire definition of success. Um, and my big picture view of parenting. And we gave our two oldest kids the choice if they even wanted to go on the trail to begin with at all. 
um, they were like 16 and probably 14 at the time we started. And yeah, I mean, I think so. Like it never happened. So it's like, I, but I, I wasn't, we had a long talk about it. Me and my wife were like, I, this is what we think we need to do. And um, I mean, there is a, there is a much tougher decision. Um, I don't think I'm ruining the book for anyone that wants to read it, but so, okay, get this. The trail is 2,189 miles long. The park commission forbid our family from finishing the last two miles together because, uh, you can't be under six and go above like tree line in Baxter state park in Maine. It's like the, it's like this weirdest rule, but whatever it exists. So basically we hiked 2,187 miles and we can't finish the last two miles, uh, unless we leave the two-year-old behind. So we had this like meeting together as a family, like figure out what to do. Like, and, and the last two miles is iconic. Like if you ever see someone who hikes the Appalachian trail, the only thing you'll see is a picture of them on this A-frame sign at the end, like this brown sign. So for five months where every hostel, every restaurant, there's like these pictures, like people will send back their postcard of them at the sign. That's like what success was to finish was to make it to the sign and get your damn picture on the sign. And now we're told we can't go to the sign unless we ditch the two-year-old. And, um, everyone was saying like, oh, you're going to regret it. If you don't go, this is like what the trail is about. Your kids deserve it. Like no one should, not everyone should be penalized just because the two-year-old can't go. People were offering to, um, watch our kid, our two-year-old people were offering to pay the fine, like hundreds of people. And my kids, made the decision that they didn't want to finish the trail without the two-year-old. So we stopped as a family two miles before the ending, uh, together. And we, we, we were like, this is the end of our hike. Um, but it shows kind of like, you know, cause you asked the question, uh, Sean, would we let our kid go home? You know? And this was like, this was almost a bigger decision than that. Like this was the iconic ending and we gave it up, but we got something and something like if you, I'm not going to spoil it because something far crazier happened two miles from the ending that made our ending better than I think anyone that makes it to the sign, but we didn't know about it. It was a surprise for us. And, but it, it's just kind of like stepping back from control and needing to, to win the status of what everyone else is fighting over though, and redefining our goals. Hmm. Man. That was one of the most profound statements I think I've heard in ages. And I can see the counselor mind. Oh, yeah. I, I can just, here comes the long retort. Get comfortable, light a new stogie here. No, <laughs> no, 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 that's not true. I, I was I was thinking about a couple of things, though. Um, something you said a little while back, though, you said uh, that um, you had a choice of... Um, like sort of pushing your kid through or all that sort of stuff or um, sitting with them in their feelings. And um, that is also incredibly important and um, profound. You know, when we think about average life for a lot of people, um, everyone's got rooms, you know, mom and dad have a room or whoever. 
Um, kids have a room. Maybe they have their own room. Maybe they share with a sibling. Doesn't really matter. But um, when conflict happens um, or or big feelings occur, um, we tend to like withdraw, yeah. right? Um, and then um, if big enough feelings and big enough outburst happens, sometimes parents say, "Go to your room," right? Yeah. Um, and there are there's a time and a place for that. Um, but more often than not, I think a better approach to, to when a child is is really having that moment is naming it for them or helping them name it and saying, like, you're really, really upset right now. I'm just going to sit with you while, while, like, this feeling will pass. I'm going to sit with you until it does. Um, and I think that is incredibly important and valuable. And when you're in the situation that you were in, you didn't have a room. You could, you know, your yeah. 13 year old's complaining, right? You couldn't be like, go to your room. Like, what are you going to say? Like, go to the, go to that pine tree. Like, like <laughs> you kind of had no other choice other than to, to sit with them. But like, that is so, so important. Actually, there's a, a, a psychologist. Her name is Dr. Steiner Adair. And she does research with technology, but then also with young women. And she talks about how um, over a long, long period of time, um, it can be particularly damaging to, to young girls when they're having an outburst or they're upset and being like, basically like, I can't deal with you, go to your room. And what that over a longer period of time research is starting to show is that um, it's a very unintentional message, but the message starts to get sent of like, if you're going to have these big emotional feelings, you do them in private. Like that's not something you show people. Right. And that's not at all what we're intending to, to do. Um, we're just trying to like diffuse the situation, but we're, uh, we may unintentionally be like telling kids, um, that's not what we do. That's not our, like the, that's a private thing. Like, and we're unintentionally sort of telling them to swallow it, stuff it down, that sort of thing versus like, what you're saying of sitting with them and being like, this is a normal part of life, like being upset, being frustrated, feeling disappointed, whatever it is. Um, and I'm going to walk with you through that. And that's not something you're going to do on your own. And so um, anyone who's sort of listening, I would also encourage them to think of um, what their intent versus their impact may be. And we've talked about that before on, on our episode, like your intent might be just to diffuse the situation, but what's the long-term impact of that? Your intent may have been to take your kids on this incredible adventure, right? Um, where they got to see a bunch of cool things, but the impact turned out to be so much more than that. They got to see this like side of humanity that most people will never get to see. Um, I, I sincerely, you know, hope that I get to, experience something like that in my life, but I don't know that I will. Um, and the fact that you were able to give that uh, gift to them at such a young age is incredible. And I have to think that um, it will be a defining thing that shapes and molds how not only they navigate the world today, but how they will navigate relationships in the future. Um, and I think it's just really, it's an amazing sort of thing. Um, to think about. So, um, your entire story is just phenomenal. Um, well, and it was a gift to, I appreciate you pointing all that out. Cause I heavily agree with that, but it was a gift to myself, you know, like, um, my training from that came from 12 step groups where I was like, you know, you say there's a place for it. And I like, 
Um, I don't disagree. Well, I do disagree actually. Like in that, I don't think there's a place for it in our life anymore. I guess I'll say that. Now we did it a lot. We did timeouts and go to your room and we hit it under all these things like, oh, you must be tired. But basically it was like, I can't stand your emotion right now. Yep. So I'm going to use my power and force to isolate you so I don't have to deal with myself. Mm-hmm. And my um, advice came from my sponsor who said like the next time your kid cries, like, and it was specifically my son for me, like was my most triggering was like, just hold him. And mm-hmm. I would like be like raging on the inside, but I'd be like, hold him. And, and what came out was like, the reason why I can't handle him crying was I couldn't handle myself crying. Yeah. And in learning to accept him, I'm learning to accept myself, Yep. which is an amazing gift. So for five months, you know, you're right. We have no doors. We have no walls. We have, there's nowhere to run to, you know, like we're literally like my teenager has the stove and, you know, my other daughter has the lunch. So like, you know, I can't send them anywhere. Like, (laughs) and uh, we need, we like literally needed each other. You know, it wasn't this proverbial, proverbial, sentimental, like, oh, kids, like we need you. But really, like, if I have Netflix, I'm fine. It was like, no, we, you know, we need each other for survival. Mm -hmm. And by being around them for five months, I mean, I'm not going to joke about it and say it was like all a walk in the park or fun and nice. Like there was days of pain and like where we couldn't stand each other. And we were really, it's hard to face ourselves. And, um, but but the end result of it is it really is like, you know, just cause we can afford to have the space to isolate each other. I think there should be a question of like, is that a, actually a good thing for what we want to build as a family? For sure. For sure. Your family's story is just absolutely awe-inspiring. And I want to thank you for coming to, to share your story uh, not just your time today, but sharing the 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 wisdom that you gain from the trail. Maybe that's some of the uh, you know life giving uh, trail magic that you got, or some of those pearls of wisdom you can share to to young dads and and moms and everyone that are listening. So thank you for coming and sharing that with us. If if someone wanted to find out more about your family, about your journey, where where can they find you? Where can they find your vlog, uh, your book, everything? So the, the book that catalogs the entire journey is called 2000 miles together. Uh, the story of the largest family to hike the Appalachian trail. And it's available on Amazon or our merch store or anything like that. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, our YouTube channel and Instagram page are called fight for together. Uh, that's F I G H T F O R together. And there's like an hour long documentary on YouTube about our, uh, family hiking and a bunch of videos and um, yeah, we have an Instagram page and stuff like that. That's awesome. Thank you for, for taking the time to, to be here with us uh, to record and for sharing your story. I, we, we appreciate you so, so very much for doing that. Yeah. Thanks guys. No, this was awesome. And Sean, thank you as always for just being you. And thank you to you, whoever you are, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast in this episode. Please be sure to follow us on uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, and of course, on our very vibrant and very up-to-date MySpace page. And until next time, stay strong, dadass. <laughs>